previously on Suspicion. Did you see anything in what you were given to support the idea that he was trampled by cattle? Absolutely nothing. This is Raynella Dawson Leith, the finest client that any lawyer, any person in America could ever want. It was the kind of judge that you could go to and you knew you'd say it like like relief. You know, people talk about their case, say, well, but I've, I'm in front of Judge Baumgartner, so I think it'll be okay. And we later find out that there, you know, there's whispers in the there's whispers in the hallways, but there's nobody saying, okay, look, we're not going back to this until we figure out what's going on. He said, I'm coming to get those pills. I told him no. He told me I was going to. These words come from Meredith Driscoll. It's January of 2010, and Meredith's friend is on the phone. She's just had a hysterectomy, and he wants the Oxycontin she was prescribed. I put them in a brown paper bag. Driscoll is a cop. She knows what she's about to do is a crime. But she knows her friend will do anything to get his fix, and she's powerless against him. So she hands the bag of painkillers to her husband. I said, don't look inside. The judge is coming to get this. Meredith Driscoll is a Knox County deputy assigned to work as a bailiff, court security, for Judge Richard Baumgartner. He's demanded painkillers from her before. A few weeks ago, after Driscoll had just had a root canal, he grabbed her prescription painkillers from her just outside the courtroom. I said, give me that bottle back. He emptied the bottle into his hand and put them in his pocket. But this time, forcing her to commit a crime? She's had enough. She writes Baumgartner a letter. You are killing my soul. Raynella Dossett Leith is in prison for life, convicted of killing her second husband and suspected of killing her first. A jury sent her there, but Judge Baumgartner is the one who locked the door. While under the influence of drugs, he broke the law to get. From the USA Today Network, Tennessee, this is Suspicion. Baumgartner got his job as a judge thanks to the death of Raynella's first husband, Knox County DA Ed Dossett. As a reporter, Jim Ballack covered Ed Dossett for years. He can explain this. Randy Nichols, a Democrat, 
And, of course, Ed Dossett was a Republican. They had run against each other in 1982 but remained friends from what I can tell. Uh, Randy Nichols was appointed to Ed Dossett's unexpired term. And Richard Bumgarner was appointed to the judgeship that Randy Nichols had held. And, and at the time, uh, Baumgartner and, and Nichols uh, both had very good reputations. And I, I, think, I think the community at large, by and large, was, was pleased with that, uh, that shift in positions. Both men knew Rainella, as prosecutor Cynthia Schimmel later found out. A lot of people in town knew her uh, just because of who she was. Nichols was DA when a toxicology report showing a lethal level of morphine in Ed's system showed up. Months after his death was ruled an accidental cow trampling. There was also a tremendous amount of pain drug in his system, like six times the normal limit. Randall Pettigo, the medical examiner back then, was a little suspicious of the cow trampling story. And anytime you've got the attorney general, who a lot of people don't like because he's put them in the penitentiary, that's dead you've got to be suspicious of a homicide. He signed off on the death as accidental before the talks report surfaced. Ed was dying of cancer, and Pedigo wondered if Rainello wanted the extra insurance money from an accidental death. She was planning a wedding to Leith, Ed's barber, Ed's best friend, after moving him onto the farm just months after Ed died. When he saw the lethal level of morphine in Ed's system, he began to wonder about the real cause of Ed's death and about Raynella. You know, because Raynella's a nurse, she had access to the narcotics. Maybe she OD'd him, and that's possible. He forwarded the report to the DA's office. Nichols now says he never saw it. It was in the file later turned over to Schimmel and fellow prosecutors Richard Fisher and Mac McCoyne. Reporter Jamie Satterfield covered Raynella Dossett Leith for years. So just to get the chronology correct, your understanding is it's it's labeled anyway in the public eye, accidental, and then some time passes. Toxicology comes back, and it's your understanding then that that was forwarded to the DA's office. That's my, that is my understanding today of what happened. Okay. Uh, what, it, what happened once it got to the attorney general's office and what impact that tox report had subsequently on the, on initially on his death, I, today I do not know. Nichols declined to be interviewed for this podcast. Baumgartner is quickly earning a reputation as a smart, hardworking judge. Judge Baumgartner, I want to say this, was a very fine judge. Every time that I testified in his court or had any contact with him, uh, he was completely with it. The rulings that he made seemed to me as a non-lawyer to be very reasonable. Uh, I thought he was a fine judge. When I started practicing, he was kind judge to young lawyers he helped me he he was he was a, he made the right decisions Baumgartner was still on the bench in 2006 when Raynello was charged with killing Leith and staging it to look like a suicide 
He was on the bench when she was indicted, accused of killing Ed and staging it to look like his cows trampled him to death. Nichols stepped aside in prosecuting her. The judge did not. Raynella's attorney, James A.H. Bell, didn't ask him to. Bell knew Baumgartner well in and out of court. He knew Raynella, David, and Ed, too. The way Schimmel sees it, they were all part of the same legal fraternity and Knox County's political community. The only way to get it moved to another county or district, that's the defense's ability and not the state's. So, we, you know, we were stuck trying it there in Knoxville. You know, Judge Baumgartner was known well. Mr. Bell, her attorney, was known well. She was known well. And we were the country bumpkins coming up from Cleveland, Tennessee, to try the case. And one of the most popular cable networks in its day, Court TV, wanted to broadcast Raynella's trial live. Judge Baumgartner loved the media. He loved cameras in the courtroom. He was a big advocate for allowing cameras in the courtroom. He allowed his courtroom in particular to serve as a pilot program for the Tennessee Supreme Court when they first authorized the idea of allowing cameras into the courtroom. So he was definitely someone who enjoyed media attention, but also enjoyed allowing the public to see how the justice system works. Meredith Driscoll's job is to take care of the needs of jurors and keep watch on the security of the courtroom and the judge. Meredith Driscoll was Judge Baumgartner's bailiff. Criminal courts have have a, a female bailiff and a male bailiff. Meredith uh, had been a probation officer, I think, prior to becoming a bailiff. So she had a long history in law enforcement and, and dealing with people with, with problems and drug problems. Driscoll was worried about the judge when Raynella's first trial got underway in March 2009. What she also knew was that he sent his secretary, Jennifer Judy, to pick up a lot of prescriptions for painkillers. Stop what you are doing before you destroy yourself. But the spotlight isn't on Baumgartner when Court TV brings its cameras to his courtroom. It's Raynella's attorney, Jim Bell, who puts on a show for the cameras. He's the type of attorney that, I mean, he is going to be an obstructionist. He's going to do anything he can for his client. And hey, you're supposed to represent your client zealously. You can't blame him for that. But uh, he, he is a colorful character. Obviously, he knew the, the ground up in Knoxville. He kept going and going and going, kind of like the Energizer Bunny. You know, he has an argument. Maybe the judge cuts him off. He keeps on. The courtroom show captures the attention of a lone juror whose 11 partners wanted to send Raynella to prison for killing Leith. The first trial resulted in uh, a mistrial. That is, it resulted in a jury that was not able to reach a verdict, what we could call hung jury. A few months later, Baumgartner gets a visit in Chambers. Judge Baumgartner's visitor is no stranger. Dina Castleman 
was involved in a drug court program that Judge Baumgartner helped found. And it is designed for people who are being arrested largely because of their addictions. They are stealing or robbing to satisfy an addiction. And certainly Dina Castleman fit the bill. She had a string of theft and burglary convictions all related to her addiction to prescription drugs, including Xanax, opiates, uh, and also an addiction to alcohol. She did not make it through the drug court program, in fact. Uh, But on this day, she has shown up, and what she tells the judge is that she needs a job, and she asks him for help. Instead, she says that the judge gave her some money and asked her to go buy him some prescription painkillers. Dina takes the money and keeps going. She didn't buy him the pills. She winds up instead getting arrested. Uh, But that was the beginning of their relationship because after she got arrested and she made bond, she went back to the judge and said, hey, I'm sorry, I, I screwed you over, if you will. What can I do to make it up to you? And he had two requests of her. One, get me pills. Two, be my lover. She agreed to both. By late 2009, Baumgartner's fame is skyrocketing. A young Knox County couple, Shannon Christian and Christopher Newsom, were killed in brutal fashion in January 2007. They were essentially kidnapped, beaten, raped, tortured, and ultimately killed. And the case drew attention from across the country and, in fact, got some international attention. And Judge Baumgartner wanted this case. He actually went to the presiding judge and demanded that the case involving the four defendants who were charged in those murders be assigned to his court. Every hearing, there was a mass of media in that case. In addition to all the work that was going on just in that case, Judge Baumgartner was maintaining a full caseload, a full trial load. By November of 2009, just a few months before Raynella's second trial, Judge Baumgartner goes to Chattanooga for jury selection in one of the Christian Newsom defendants' cases. Judge Baumgartner shows up at a restaurant where there were many court personnel there with Dina Castleman. There were some whispers about that. Uh, Judge Baumgartner was married at the time. Dina Castleman is considerably younger than him, and she's a criminal. The next day, he's late for jury selection. When he gets there, he's grumpy as all get out. He was on the phone when he shouldn't have been. He was getting up and walking around and sometimes leaving the room. He was just acting very strangely. Dina Castleman can't keep up with the judge's pill demands. She introduces the judge to Chris Gibson. 
Chris Gibson lived in a rundown trailer in Northwest Knox County. The trailer was perched on top of a hill with this very steep driveway leading up to it. There were attack dogs surrounding this trailer. There were surveillance cameras set up on this trailer and there were guns inside that trailer. All of the things that drug dealers use for protection. And it was at this trailer that Judge Baumgartner would go to get drugs. Gibson knew the judge. Two years before, Baumgartner put Gibson on probation for shooting at his ex-wife. Baumgartner is the only thing standing between Gibson and a jail cell. Drugs weren't the only thing that Chris Gibson says Judge Baumgartner was getting when he visited Gibson's trailer, sometimes on a break from court. According to Chris Gibson, Baumgartner would meet Dina Castleman at his trailer. They would use drugs together and have sex. Gibson said occasionally Baumgartner would proposition any other woman who happened to be in the trailer and occasionally would get lucky. On the bench, Baumgartner is looking pretty awful. Well, at the time, he looked pretty worn and haggard, and I just thought that was from weariness. I, I had no idea what the problem was at the time, but uh, he seemed uh, he seemed to be alert enough to preside over the trial. And, and he was he was carrying a load at he, that time. He yes, had he was that case. He had the Christian Newsom cases. I mean, he, this was a very active judge at the time. Exactly, right? and 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 the uh, both cases extremely high profile and complicated. I do remember thinking this is one tired man. He needs a vacation. Every day that he got away with it emboldened him, like any other addict. It was getting worse by the day. But he's robed and ready in January of 2010 when Raynella is facing a jury for a second time. Driscoll is watching the judge. By the time that we got to the Ms. Leith case, he was in full-blown. I know that his head was down and his eyes were closed. I don't know if he was asleep or not. But during a lot of trials, his face would be down. It appeared to be asleep. It looked terrible, and a fine judge was being embarrassed, and I wanted it stopped. Everybody that walked in, if they didn't know something was wrong and they want to say that they didn't see it, which is what everybody said, then they're blind. During the Leith trial, Jim Bell came through the door and sat with me. Well, he was standing with me when I was sitting by the jury and the judge was asleep. And he was going to sleep, and Jim was standing by me, and I said, I'm going to take pictures of him. And I got my phone out, and I took pictures. Bell says nothing about the judge or to the judge. There is no holdout on this jury. Raynella is branded guilty. On the second trial resulted in a conviction. So she was convicted of the offense of first-degree murder. Prosecutors dropped the indictment in Ed's death. They said the evidence was weaker than in Leith's death. And, well, she's already behind bars for the rest of her life. Now, though, the judge is on Driscoll's doorstep demanding her pills. She has had enough. I told everybody in power that I could think of. I told attorneys... 
We all saw what was happening to a beloved judge. Nobody came forward. Everybody turned their back. I wore a badge and I had no choice but to put my badge down and leave because I was not going to watch it. But I will tell you, Judge Baumgartner, if you crossed him, he was not a nice person. So I tread carefully with him. Driscoll waits for Belle to ask for her pictures. He doesn't. He was the finest judge I've ever seen set on a bench. And he was an addict. But he acted like an addict. People around him did him no favors by ignoring it because he went from an addict that was coping to someone that was unable to cope and it ended up ruining his career. I wrote my letter. I decided that I had to leave. And when I left, I hadn't heard from Jim, so I deleted the pictures. Bell is fending off his own legal fight to save his license, while Raynella is paying him to convince Baumgartner to give her a new trial. Two months after Raynella was convicted, a federal judge unsealed a secret investigation that had been ongoing against Jim Bell during Raynella's second trial and became public as he was trying to win her this new trial. Um, Bell was accused of lying to a federal magistrate judge. He was ultimately sanctioned and fined. He did not lose his law license. But there certainly was an implication that he was distracted by his own issues at the time when he was supposed to be defending Raynella. As Driscoll is deleting those pictures and leaving her career behind, Baumgartner is behind the wheel on Interstate 40. The car is swerving. Judge Baumgartner was heading back to Knoxville from Nashville where uh, he had just gone through the process of selecting a jury in one of the Christian Newsom cases. He was traveling on Interstate 40. Behind his vehicle was a car that contained two prosecutors, Leland Price and Takesha Fitzgerald. They saw the judge's car weaving on the interstate. Ultimately, a phone call was made to the judge, and he was instructed to pull over or law enforcement would be called, so he did. The two prosecutors told their boss, Randy Nichols. His old friend Nichols pays the judge a visit. Baumgartner told Randy Nichols that he had just had too much wine the night before, had maybe taken some medication, but he essentially waved it off and said, look, this is no big deal. Nichols did nothing at all. It was just kind of hushed up and covered up. A few weeks later, no one can argue a problem with Baumgartner. Television cameras roll as he struggles to read a jury's verdict. Did you notice, and here's some of the allegations, that he was extremely short-tempered. He couldn't keep his train of thought. That uh, he was sleepy-sounding. That he repeated himself. That he seemed confused. 
Those are some of the things that were testified to in post-conviction. What is your recollection, if anything, about the, whether there was anything unusual about the judge in that second trial? What I most remember is how he was fumbling around with the verdict. He seemed more tired and haggard. He was fumbling, bumbling around during the, during the verdict phase, and I thought, I just thought he was about to collapse from exhaustion. Still, no one says anything. Was it a shock to the system when it became known that he had uh, an opiate addiction? It was apparent to a lot of people that there was a problem. What wasn't apparent was the nature of the problem and the extent of the problem. Gibson, Baumgartner's drug dealer, has a problem too, an angry ex-wife. Feeling vengeful, she snaps a photo of the judge's car in Gibson's driveway The judicial plate is visible. Chris Gibson's ex-wife turns over this photo to her lawyer, Russell Green. Green was one of two attorneys who had represented defendant Vanessa Coleman in the Christian Newsom cases. And it was in the Coleman case that Judge Baumgartner was viewed by everybody in the courtroom, fumbling with, stumbling through the verdict in that case. For whatever reason, Russ Green does not alert Vanessa Coleman, his client, or anyone else about this photo of the judge's car. And ultimately, what Russ Green did was take this photo and put it in a safe in his office. A few months later, Gibson's ex-wife tells police about the judge's visits to his trailer. The Tennessee Bureau of Investigation begins a secret probe of the judge. Raynella is still in prison, and Baumgartner is holding hearings in her case. What they wanted to show was that somebody in law enforcement could have gone in, gotten the gun, opened it up, taking the hulls out and put them in a different order, shut them out, and then walked out with a gun. It's so such a stretch, a bizarre stretch anyway. But it was, again, you grab for anything you can to muck up the picture. On January 20th of 2011, a year since Raynella was convicted, TBI agents raid Gibson's trailer. He agrees to talk, and he hires Bell to get him a deal for snitching. James A.H. Bell, who again represented Raynella uh, through both her prior trials, he ended up also having a role in Baumgartner's criminal case. Bell had undertaken to represent Christopher Gibson, and Mr. Gibson um, was basically Judge Baumgartner's pill dealer. You have an attorney who, in the one case, is working on Raynella's case, where he's trying to, to overturn her conviction. And in the other case, he's representing the judge's pill dealer, which necessarily gives him access to more information about the judge and the judge's problem. It means that you can't go to court and say, 
the judge is on pills and I know the judge is on pills because I just got done talking to his dealer, right? Because then you're hurting your, you're, you're putting your other clients confidential information in the public realm and you're putting your other client in a difficult position because now you're talking about the crimes he's committed and that's not your place. You can't, can't do that. I don't think it was helpful. Did he have an ethical obligation to at least tell Ray Nella something? I think the whole situation is fraught with peril. That's not to say it's unethical. If I'm representing Gibson and I get the TBI file, and then I use that information to help Raynella, that is not a, an ethical dilemma. Jim Bell had access to Richard Baumgartner's drug dealer and therefore access to any information that Chris Gibson might have had about Richard Baumgartner's state of mind and level of intoxication during Raynella's trial. We know that Jim Bell never raised any issues about Richard Baumgartner's drug addiction or level of intoxication in Raynella's trial during the appeal of her case. He never mentioned it. He's never explained why he did not attempt to use the information he had from Chris Gibson or the information that he sought to get to help Raynella in her appeal. It could have been tactical to not raise it on appeal because that set up exactly what uh, Raynella later did, which was hire new defense attorneys to present that case. There's also a theory that for whatever reason, Jim Bell simply chose not to use this information to help Raynella. That's the two theories. Bell would later claim that he told Raynella about Chris Gibson and his representation of her. James A.H. Bell said he did not wish to participate in this podcast. The next day, agents pay a visit to Baumgartner in Chambers. He tells them to talk to his lawyer. Three days later, he holds a hearing on Raynella's motion for a new trial. He denies it and leaves the bench, never to return. The second trial occurs. Judge Baumgartner takes a leave of absence. Uh, on his way out the door, he signs the order denying the motion for a new trial in, in Raynella's case. Uh, he takes a leave of absence for which he's, he doesn't ever come back. On the day that Judge Baumgartner stepped away from the bench, he called me and said that he was taking a medical leave and essentially ordered me not to dig further, to honor his privacy. And then he hung up on me. That phone call led me to dig. And the first thing that I learned was that the TBI had confronted him based on information from Chris Gibson. I then learned through rumors, basically, that Judge Baumgartner may have been involved with a drug court participant. So I did a little process of elimination and eventually got Dina Castleman's name. I called Dina Castleman. 
She said the judge was a good friend of hers, but there was no way she was sleeping with him. That was just a lie and that she wasn't getting drugs for him. Um, and she was clearly high on the phone. She hung up, and then about 30 minutes later, she called me back, and she confessed essentially everything. In the process of that reporting, I discovered that Judge Baumgartner had demanded drugs from a clerk in the uh, in Knox County Criminal Court. I discovered that Meredith Driscoll had quit her job just a couple of months after Raynella was convicted and that she had sent a letter to Judge Baumgartner detailing why she quit. Baumgartner is convicted in 2012 in federal court of lying to cover up Dina Castleman's drug crimes. He spends six months in a work camp. In the meantime, Bell is working on Raynella's appeal, which never mentions the judge's addiction. But this appeal is denied. Baumgartner goes home to his farm. His wife is no longer there. His pension is gone. And Raynella is still behind bars in Nashville. You still have to convince the court that she would have had a different answer, right? You still have to convince the court that that there was some error and that the error was significant enough that it impacted the fairness of the trial because the jury is not impaired and they're making the ultimate decision. And combined with the fact that we've had an appellate court review this trial, right, for legal error. And the appellate court has said, legally, this is acceptable. That, that, that there is no error in the law that would entitle her to a new trial. Raynella's daughters and family rally around her. She fires Bell and hires a new attorney. I remember the first time I met with her, uh, the first thing that she, she was interested in was, I had driven out to Nashville to meet with her, and I got there around lunchtime. And the first time first meeting, she sat down with me, and the first thing she wanted to know was whether I'd had lunch. I told her, well, no, I, I haven't had lunch. I just drove straight through from Knoxville. And she was very concerned about that. And she, she was concerned that we, we finish up the meeting quickly so I could go get lunch. And, you know, I'm try, I'm, and I, here I am trying to explain to her that we have a lot of important things to talk about. You know, we, and and she was, that was her, her primary concern, it seemed like. Um, and I, it struck me as a very nurturing, motherly figure. If I'm playing devil's advocate, you are looking at a, a woman who's killed two men and shot at a third. When I'm on my way to the prison, I'm not thinking of her as the woman that she's been portrayed to be. I'm thinking in terms of someone who has received what it appeared to me on even just on first brush to be a, a flawed process. Um, and so if you if you start with the proposition that the process is flawed, then the results you have less confidence in. What were her odds at that point? Once you have that jury verdict, the jury verdict removes the presumption of innocence because you now have been convicted by a jury of your peers. Post-convictions are generally 
considered last ditch appeal. You're not even guaranteeing a hearing on a post conviction, correct? That's true. That's correct. And we can't forget the natural inclination towards leaving a judgment final. It can be hard for a judge to look at a jury's verdict and take it back because that's a big step. At the time of the denial of motion for new trial, Judge Baumgartner had fallen into what became an ever-increasing addiction to narcotics. It had got to the point where it was impacting his ability to function as a judge. Driscoll finds a new career involving her first love, horses. She doesn't talk about the judge anymore or the letter she sent him. She's never met Raynella formally, but she's soon to receive a court order to talk about the judge and what she saw during Raynella's trial. She's the hero in this story, and I say that because there were people in this story who had more power and more authority than her, who said nothing, while she stood up and and said as much, I think, as she could. But prosecutors see her as a villain. Judge Baumgartner, I want to say this, was a very fine judge. He tried all the torture and murder cases. He, I really feel badly about the testimony of Meredith Driscoll. Raynella's new legal team gets to work. Winning a new trial at this stage in the legal game, it's a long shot. Accused black widow, falsely imprisoned grandma, dead DA, drug-addicted judge. There's not a judge in Knox County or East Tennessee who wants to take on this legal mess. But the Tennessee Supreme Court does have someone in mind. Paul Summers had once been a prosecutor in the same era that Ed Dossett was a prosecutor. He's the kind of judge that will let the parties argue. They'll let them work with their positions, and he will uh, engage the parties in motion argument. Um, he has a, I would say that he has a very clear sense of justice. There's a new DA in charge, Stephen Crump. He sends Schimmel and McCoyne to fend off Raynella's latest legal attack. Fisher is not with them. Judge Summers holds three days of hearings. There are fights over evidence, witnesses, decisions, and strategies. Summers listens to all of it, but he leans forward when Driscoll takes the stand. Prosecutors pounce hard and fast. I think her credibility was in question, uh, and I think that was because perhaps... I mean, she, she wrote Judge Baumgartner letter. This is my question. Why couldn't you have kept this away from work? Now, this is what I want. Did you just think that I would leave without nothing? I want a glowing letter of recommendation with a date left open, signed. I will use this if I ever apply for a job. If you are called about me, I expect a glowing report. You better stop any rumors about why I left. You better make damn sure that those boys know that I will be missed and you just do not know what you will do without me. You damn sure better protect my reputation. 
want my letter of recommendation by March 1st, 2010. Do not ever contact me. And if you see me on the street, walk the other way. You better make damn sure all the attorneys think that you are just devastated because I left. I'm telling you, you better take care of my reputation. Stop what you are doing before you destroy yourself. Sit down and read this letter again. You will see that walking away and writing this letter was because of the man that hired me to be in his court eight years ago. But I refuse to work for you now. You are killing my soul. The reason I left was the following. I left to start my own business. This is what I will tell people. Are you surprised that I wanted nothing? You should not be. I was your friend. Meredith. I don't want to say it was threatening, but it was certainly in terms of telling about what is going on or him taking pills, if in fact he was, or she getting uh, disciplined or by him. So I think because of all that, her credibility was in question, and I still do. I cross-examined her uh, in the post-conviction hearing, and she was a bit hostile, you know, and even said, I worked with you all these years. You know, how can you sit there and do that when I questioned her? Much like the defense, I have to zealously represent my client, which is the state of Tennessee. And so I did my job, but do I think she was credible? No, I don't. Mm -hmm. How do they know how much he took at that time? And how do they know that the amount he took milligram-wise would have affected him detrimentally to the case? I think she was there through all those trials and perhaps in the continuum of time, she kind of mixed it all together. And rather than focusing on what happened on the date of this case, and uh, because when you observe the decline of somebody over a period of time, you don't necessarily divide it case by case by case. And, and uh, she may have had an axe to grind, I don't know. We ended up looking at her as a potential witness, somebody to go talk to because she had left, because she'd quit you know, in this time period. When you first reach out to her, is she, yes, let's do this. I mean, what was her response or reaction initially? She didn't want to, to air the judge's laundry. She didn't want to discuss her own private business. And she didn't want to be a whistleblower. The state was pursuing this narrative that this letter that she wrote the judge complaining about his drug use was extortion. So here she is, in the very least, a whistleblower, mm -hmm. now being accused of, of being a blackmailer. Right, right. And it's important to remember that, that what she was allegedly blackmailing him was she was demanding that he stop being a drug addict, right? So that's, I mean, I, as blackmail goes, it's kind of excusable, right? The state's strategy was 
deny that the judge is impaired um, and argue that everyone who says the judge is impaired is just making stuff up. And so Meredith, somewhat in response, she gave fairly vivid descriptions mm-hmm. of what she witnessed and heard during Raynella's trial. She described how uh, he would get impatient and he would have to leave and, and, and go to, you know, he'd disappear at lunch, come back and, and all these things uh, that, that were clear addict behavior. Driscoll tells Judge Summers she wasn't threatening or demanding anything in that letter. She says it was a desperate last-ditch try to get Baumgartner to straighten up. Prosecutors choose not to summon the judge to the witness stand. Raynella heads back to the women's penitentiary. How confident did you feel when you walked away from the end of the hearings? I didn't feel real confident. Would Judge Summers publicly condemn a fellow judge? And would he set an accused black widow free? Is he easily intimidated? Oh, no. No, he, 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 I don't think he could be intimidated. Intimidated or not, what happened next was something nobody could have predicted. On the final episode of Suspicion. It's the good old buddy system. There's really no justice. I'm, I'm sitting there in the chair. I'm thinking, surely that's not, you've got to be crazy. That can't be right. I was shocked. I really was. If you know the right people have got enough money, you can get by with murder. Suspicion is a production of the USA Today Network, Tennessee, and is written by Matt Lakin and Jamie Satterfield. It is produced by Erica Whitney, John Garcia, and Angela Gosnell. Original theme music by Elijah Newman and Chris Potosik. Sound engineered by Elijah Newman. You can subscribe to Suspicion wherever you typically listen to podcasts. Be sure to rate and leave a review as well. You can also keep up to date with us on social media. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at SuspicionPod.